Welcome to the Leadership Trap Podcast, recorded live here in Austin, Texas. In this podcast, we explore the conditions that lead to surviving and thriving in a successful leadership role. We examine the traps that can cause leaders to stumble, bumble, or get ambushed in ways that may or may not be of their own making. I'm Dr. Chris Petrovka, and with David Hewen of Austin WorkNet, we have a conversation with each leader that explores the traps that they have encountered through their leadership journey. Hopefully it brings a new perspective to your role as a leader and helps you navigate your own way through the traps. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump into the trap. So Ray Arata is a fascinating individual. Here's a businessman who's taken up the flag of how to have men be more self-aware and more connected into uh, how they represent themselves from being um, models of masculinity, which is not working very well, versus models of uh, inclusive leaders and being allies and having an emotional literacy. Um, you and I have talked in the past, Chris, about how uh, Time's Up, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, social conditions have found their way into the workplace and uh, cultures, organizations have struggled to find a way to strike a balance to allow for these social conditions to influence cultures in an effective, positive way. And Ray's a bit of a um, vocal leader in this regard. And he's written a book called uh, Showing Up, How Men Can Become Effective Allies in the Workplace. And his mission um, is stated as he's committed to transform culture through heart-based leadership. So this is a genuine guy. He really wants to uh, have leaders, um, male leaders, become much more um, uh, self-aware and self-actualized in the uh, in the workspace. Yeah, this conversation was all about inclusiveness and self-awareness, and uh, it almost feels like we talked about this. The, you know, was it opportunistic in in how this this came about in his books? And you know, he talks about his journey there, and it really was not at all. It just it feels a little bit that way. Like is he taking advantage of this social situation? And um, it came across pretty clearly early on in our conversation that was not the case. Uh, he did not expect the timing of a lot of these social issues to come up. Um, and he, I was impressed too when he talked about what it means to be an ally and how you can be an ally and not just in the work setting, but in, in life and how he goes about doing that and how he coaches others, which I think uh, our listeners will find to be very helpful. Yeah. I mean, to meet Ray uh, at first, you think, okay, this guy's straight out of Goodfellas. You know, he's this Italian guy. He's got a bit of a uh, strong nature Ford uh, type style. Uh, yet he's talking about things that really have a softened sensibility to them. Really fascinating guy. So let's get into it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Ray Arata. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another version of the Leadership Trap podcast. We're here with guest Ray Arata. Welcome to the show, Ray. Thank you. It's great to be here. Ray, you've got a new book that is officially out as of just this month, possibly. Wow. We're recording this in January of the new nice. year. So congratulations. That's never Congrats. a simple task to yep. pull that uh, together. Is this your second or third book? This is my my second book, um, but this was this this experience was the real deal. 
the yeah. real publisher, the uh, write the big check for the PR firm, nice. uh, write the big check for the book launch, um, reach out and to Sheryl Sandberg uh, at Facebook and lean in and get a yes uh, for a blurb. And that's great. I got, I got a lot of um, positive support. So this go around um, the, the word got out and it's timely and, Yep. It took a lot of work. And the day before the book launch, I realized tomorrow's the book launch. But you know what else it is? It's just Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. And so whatever my fears were of being inundated with too much demand or nothing happening, I let all of that go. And this is the long game. That's the long game that I'm playing. Cool. That's great. Yeah. So the book is entitled Showing Up how men can become effective allies in the workplace. So tell us what motivated you to write the book. So having written the first book, uh, which is called Wake Up, Man Up, Step Up, I was challenged by an individual who said, Ray, you're playing a one-to-one game. You need to be playing a one-to-many game. And after a thousand cups of coffee, with sitting down with men and sending them off to a men's weekend, I wrote the book. And that was all fine. And I met a diversity and inclusion consultant who said, you really have something here, Ray. The men in corporate America need to hear from you. But first, I want you to go to a women's leadership conference and just listen. So I went there. I was the only guy there. And I had you know, my man in the mirror moment when I realized, okay, um, all those times my mom, I'm, a, I'm Italian-American, uh, said that all the rights and privileges and opportunities went to her older brother, but not her because she was a girl. I got it. My wife, who's one of eight kids in an Italian family, her brother runs the the real estate firm. I got it. And then my daughter, who is going to be graduating with a degree in computer science from Duke, I'm like, okay, this is not okay. Somebody needs to do something. And I realized that, okay, I can go speak to these conferences in rooms full of women and tell them how to partner with guys. Or I could take my ability to create a safe space and to have men gather and to meet them where they at. So I reached out to several corporate guys I knew and a couple of gals. And I said, I've got this idea that I want to advance healthy masculinity into the leadership conversation. I didn't even really know what DEI was. I had no friggin' idea. So once I did that, uh, they said, yes, let's do it. And the first conference happened in Genentech and Pricewaterhouse and Kaiser Permanente and several other companies um, uh, showed up. Michael Kimmel spoke at my conference, who I've become really good friends with. And by the way, why do you think that was, Ray? Do you think this was sort of an ideally timed moment that they picked up on? The people who were doing this work uh, were few and far between. The catalysts of the world, you know, it was the women doing the heavy lifting. (laughs) And there weren't that many men out there. And, you know, and so I I guess I just kind of caught it early. I caught it right. And, you know, the women were fatigued enough and there was... You know, the reason I called it the Better Man Conference is, is, is I made an assumption that inside all men, there's this part of us that we want to be better. So I called it the Better Man Conference. Who wouldn't? And who that's wouldn't? Exactly. <laughs> you know, and and so I got a little bit of pushback, but that's that's come and gone. Um, and and so 
what when I did the conference, it set me on a trajectory of learning, steep trajectory of learning. And after five years, you know, pre-COVID, you know, it was time for it to come out again, <laughs> out of my head. And so I timed it pretty well during COVID where I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write this book because people keep at all these guys are asking me, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Diversity leads were asking me, how do we engage our men? So I had two audiences. And then the third audience, women and, and marginalized folk want to be supported. And yeah. my leadership training just said, okay, Ray, take the lead, write the friggin' book. And the rest will take care of itself. So I, you know, I told my business partners, I'm not going to be business developing because I'm going to be writing my book. We need to get someone to reach out on our behalf. And I, you know, last year, you know, from, I guess, January to March, every mo Monday through Friday from eight to noon, I was writing my book. Mm. And uh, I got the right support. And everyone says, oh, Ray, your timing's great. Well, <laughs> It doesn't seem like that because I've been at this for seven or eight years, but with Time's Up, Me Too, COVID, and Black Lives Matter, they all formed a perfect storm. Yeah, so people resonated. You know, the, the, it, it resonated exactly, mm -hmm. and so that's just kind of my style. So I, I I put it out there. You know, everyone writes a book for a different reason. Mine was to get it out there and to create a roadmap and to advance the movement. Not to make money. Nobody makes money writing a book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, what if you'd come out with this book 20 years ago? What What would the reception, if you had to speculate, have, uh, what would that have looked like? Just the same as it ago. would have been, the same as it would have been three or four years ago. Uh, it would have gathered dust. Uh, <laughs> uh, guys would have felt yeah. threatened. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? Everything's fine. And so the heat's been the heat's been turned up. That's why I refer to it as a perfect storm. We need not look any pat any further past how women have so wonderfully galvanized and come together and formed their movements. And so what I'm talking about a lot these days, especially to men, is that there's a minority of men, the bad apples, who have been controlling the narrative that shines the light on the majority, the rest of us good guys. And if we're pretending like everything's fine or completely unaware that it's not or uh, afraid to say or do the wrong thing or just being quiet, then we're complicit. So the trick here is to, for all you men that are listening, is to start asking yourself the question, how do you want to be experienced by those around you as a leader? You know, if you're a parent, your kids are watching you 24-7. They watch what you say. They watch what you do. They watch what you don't say. They watch what you don't do. Your employees are your children, your business children, per se. And so you get a chance to say, ask yourself, do I want to use my power, position, and privilege for good and create a more inclusive environment and make this a number one priority? It's good business. But that's not the only reason. The data's been there for a while mm -hmm. and it's never yeah. been enough. A lot of the systemic supporting mechanisms have started to fall apart. So I think that's what's exactly. giving them a little bit of uncomfortableness, uneasiness, and, and, and they can't turn to their buddies and go, ha ha, wasn't that funny? Like kind of the old frat boy kind of mindset is, 
is breaking down, which is allowing, I think, people to have that conversation. I look at different pockets of, of, of men. There's the men inside organizations, but I'm an avid cyclist. So when I'm cycling in the Peloton and I hear guys behind me talking about this stuff, I'm like, yes, it's permeating into the other areas of life and they know what I'm doing. So they'll come up and they'll ask me a question. And so there's more opportunity to raise the the level of consciousness um, for whether you're a father, you're a husband, gay or straight, you know, however you identify, there's an opportunity at the times now, as far as I'm concerned. So let's set a bit of a baseline of understanding for our listeners. Um, you introduce some terms in your book that aren't necessarily commonly um, used in our um, sort of business lexicon. One is inclusive masculinity. Tell us a bit about that. What does that look like? In order to identify or to speak to inclusive masculinity, I need to uh, I, uh, describe healthy masculinity. In order to describe healthy masculinity, I need to speak to toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity is, is, is that type of masculinity that's driven by the man box, those unwritten rules of what it means to be a man, like men don't show emotion, men make all the decisions, uh, real men are heterosexual you know, and on and on and on. And so men and women know what those rules enacted look like. So now let's flip it and let's look to healthy masculinity. Healthy masculinity as defined by me is an inside job. It's being aware, conscious, introspective. That's conscious head. It's also conscious heart. That means I'm connected to my emotions. I'm not reacting, I'm proactive. It means I'm capable of being vulnerable, being authentic. So inclusive masculinity is this idea, especially for men, as a leader, uh, are you willing to, and there's, I can give you a whole list of things, center the voices of other people and decenter yourself? Are you willing to, uh, in a table full of men where there's one woman, are you open to paying attention to the airtime that all the men are taking? And are you paying attention to the woman who's wanting to, but having a little difficulty to insert herself like a guy? No, wait a minute. She's not a guy. So are you, are you aware? So that's just a small, are you willing to go get the coffee? <laughs> Clean up after. I mean, some of these little tiny, tiny things. When no woman's around and a guy starts talking derogatorily, are you willing to pull him aside and say, hey, man, not okay? It's, it's inclusive masculinity in the context of leadership can take many, many, many forms, which is why I realized I needed to spend so much time writing this book to give guys, here's some good intentions, here's what the actions look like, and here's here's some scenarios that that will probably be familiar to you. So you've joined us. Thank you for that. You've joined us on the leadership track. So I can't help but ask what you see are some of the more obvious traps. There must be a minefield of leadership traps from oh, where you sit. Uh, but give us one or two examples that can resonate 
with the male leaders who are now starting to sort of um, be thoughtful about what you're saying, help them understand where they may have had a history of some traps, or they may be in one or two traps of their own making right now that you can help them um, work their way out of. The first trap is to erroneously assume that everything's fine. It's your company. <laughs> that, that, that you have it, just because you have a DEI department, and just because you might see a few women in leadership positions, to don't assume that everything's fine. And the reason why I say that is, uh, I was in I was in London delivering a training to Bloomberg, the whole room of all the all the senior editors, and the CEO of the of the of the newsroom, uh, John Micklethwaite. I met with him before with one of my former partners, and. We showed him a slide, and the slide said "Tale of Two Companies," and it had a list of the the, the corpse that came from the guys. We had an hour scheduled for these interviews. They were off the phone in twenty minutes. The women's interviews were off the phone. We had to get them off the phone after an hour. And you'd see with the guys that everything's fine. We have a meritocracy. We're doing pretty good. You'd look at the women, and there would be this long list of. Things you know, you, you promote on 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 possibility as opposed to merit. It's a boys' club. You say we need education. It blah 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 blah. And so he's the DEI folks who brought us in didn't want us to show it to the CEO. And he's like, no, not only am I glad that you showed it to me, I'm going to put it up on the wall and I'm going to own my piece in this. And the reason why I'm saying this to you is as we went around the room, this is what we heard from all the men. Anything from, oh my God, I had no idea, to what do I do? Like, wow. They had no idea. And that's because if we're not feeling the hurt, we're not feeling the pain, it's out of sight, it's out of mind. So that's probably the biggest trap. The second biggest trap is, and I'm, I'm going to couch this in such a way that you're only an ally when somebody from a marginalized group tells you you are. And so the phrase I use, my partner and I use is Al, forever allies in training. So the, there's another trap that has men think, and I just did a keynote this morning with Google where I listed all the five states of men inside companies. And I said, okay, guys, what group do you most identify with now? And we can talk about those in a little bit, guys. But um, And I said, as they were starting to put it up there, I said, before you answer, know that there's research out there that shows that men think they're further along than they are. And as soon as they started typing stuff in chat, I said, okay, anybody else who doesn't identify as a man, now type in the, the state of men that you most frequently encounter. And I want everybody... <laughs> to watch at the Discord. So those two things right there, just to reiterate, um, don't think you're further along than you are, right? And, and the first one is, you know, be know that there's stuff going on and get curious uh, inside your company. Then you're proactive as opposed to reactive. That's yeah. the name of the game. So you, instead of us assuming what we know what you mean by ally because there's the general definition can you give us 
uh, a better sense of how being an ally and creating a culture of allies applies here? So to me, being an ally uh, is about being a supportive, understanding person to do what you can do to create a level playing field for another human being. And if you have the position, if you have the power, if you have the privileges and you understand the benefit of doing your part to create uh, an inclusive and diverse place to work that people feel like they belong, then there's a lot of human nature. I mean, it's what we do in our families, if you really think about it. And so what we really want so that's what you can do at an individual level in order to do that in a, in an organization that translates to culture. And so when you, if you're a CEO or a very senior leader, this needs to be made important and you can't be performative. You have to speak to that. This is important. You've got to walk the talk because in corporate America, if the, if people in middle management, people with you know middle managers before they become VPs or directors, are watching the leaders above them say one thing and do another, that's what they're going to do. So one of the things I do in my trainings and at the Better Man Conference is I invite those senior leaders to be interviewed, to share their stories, to tell on themselves, to be human, to be a little bit vulnerable, so that they can burst the bubble and help. The middle managers acknowledge, understand, and then step on their own path of becoming better allies, especially when no one's looking. So you've got to cascade this from the top down to the bottom. Yeah. No ifs, ands, or buts. I assumed that was um, your advocacy is that you need at least one breakthrough influential executive to burst that bubble as opposed to trying to... Um, uh, corral a group of middle managers to uh, push yeah. up against the ceiling of toxic masculinity. That's a, that's exactly right. And now I've been uh, as bold enough when a new company talks to me saying, I need to talk to your CEO. And they're like, why? And I'm like, because I need to find out, um, is this on the radar? Is it important? Why is it? And what's their level of commitment? And by the way, if we do that, then your little budget becomes superfluous instead of you trying to do a culture change endeavor that requires senior leadership and a commitment to do this. You know, Moody's is a classic example. They were a sponsor of my New York Better Man conference. DK uh, Bartley, who's interviewed in my book, uh, I said, I, I want to um, talk to one of your Head, head folk and Rob Falber, who was who is now the CEO, was then the CFO. He opened up the conference and he we had a little conversation. He told me the day before, Ray, wait till you hear this story that I'm going to tell. And he got up on the stage and he shared some feedback his wife gave him. And she said to him, you're just like the rest of them. She hit him with a zinger and he had a, a, a real and to, it, as far as I'm concerned, that was probably one of the most poignant moments for a leader to get up there and to own that piece and then to make a request of the rest of the guys. Game changer. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's good. Gave them permission uh, for a bit. So what are some of the mistakes that you see men making when they try to get this transition, right? When they hear those messages and they think, I want to be better. And they, they may be like a sport. You know, when you're first learning a sport, you kind of fumble through it at first. You're hack around and you're, you're overthinking it. How do you see men kind of fall in maybe, maybe if not, some similar traps? So uh, they go up into their head and they try to think their way through it. To, to, to borrow from your words. And that's not where all the answers are. Um, they, they'll, they'll go too quickly. This kind of, and here's a classic example, listening. There's the, I talk about the four steps of the allies journey that is in the book that any individual person can use. They're like a little mini roadmap. And the first one is acknowledge your stuff, which is acknowledge my bias, my privilege, this man box thing that can has historically driven men's behavior and my emotions. The second step is listen with empathy and compassion. Now, in order to do that, men can step into the trap of listening from the head as opposed to listening from the heart. So listening from the head is like waiting for somebody to finish and then inserting your piece or operating from a right, wrong, win, lose paradigm, or defending or invalidating. In, the, in this landscape, if someone says what you said or did landed negatively on me, Chris, and it hurt me, now's not the time for you to listen from your head. It's time to listen from your heart, which means instead of doing everything I just said not to do, you say, tell me more, or I'm so sorry that I can see what I said or did landed negatively on you. So that's probably one of the biggest ones that men need to learn how to do. This is not a zero-sum game. It's not about winning. It's about connecting with other human beings so that they feel safe to bring their, their all of their contribution to work. And that's incumbent upon you as a leader. So, so that me- was... The, the, Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, I was just going to say, so let me throw out a moral dilemma for you. We like moral dilemmas in the uh, leadership trap. So here's one for you. You do leadership coaching as a part of your uh, offerings and practice. So I'm going to paint a scenario for you, and I'd love to get your perspective, mm-hmm. Ray. So um, you have a new first-time CEO. You've been coaching this executive, and uh, he has achieved that rung on the ladder he's been uh, eager to take on in his career trajectory. A company, a board has hired him in and they've released their prior CEO. He's the new CEO on the scene. The board endorses him. They just got around the funding. They've got a new lead investor on the board that actually uh, advocated for him to come on. And so he already has a uh, mentor, partner, uh, advocate for him uh, who happens to have the uh, deepest pockets because he's uh, the lead investor. Now, um, he's inherited a company, and because of your good coaching, he's also tuned in to how he wants to show up. He wants to show up, and he's going to set a tone in the culture accordingly. Um, His lead investor, primary board member, has said to him, glad you're here, Um, the one member of your executive team, who, by the way, happens to be the only female, 
I don't trust her. I don't think she's doing a good job. You need to fire her. That's one of your first 90-day requirements. What's your coaching to this new first-time incoming CEO? How bad do you want this job? What are you willing to do regarding your integrity and reputation as a CEO, leader, and individual? And how open are you to meeting with this woman and learning more about what's going on with this particular board member? Are you, are you, a friend of mine used to work at Oracle and he said, Ray, because of your help and coaching, I learned every day that I'm willing to get fired today, every day. And, and what he meant by that was he wasn't going to play the game. He was going to do his job. He was going to think about the clients. He was going to think about the stakeholders and he wasn't going to, um, worry about his boss or his boss's boss. He was going to do the right thing. So that's where I would, I'd go right at it and find out, okay, mm-hmm. how important is this job to you? Because if his answer was no, I'm not willing to do that. I have to probably step away as a coach because yeah. I don't want to coach this guy to be performative, inauthentic. And I mean, I could fill in the blanks. Yeah, so, yeah. I'm with you. You may have to fire him as a client. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's easy. Yep. Okay, good. Um, I'm kind of glad you took that uh, path, although that's challenging. If someone finally reaches that sort of pinnacle stage in a career and now days within it, they're facing this type of challenge and they may convince themselves, listen, I'll get over the hump on this one. And then I'm going to show up in every other way. This was just the one time I couldn't show up because I just got here. Uh, I, I just need yeah. to show up repeatedly. Uh, but I'm with you. It's a character challenge right off the bat. Let me ask you I, this. Yeah, I have. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I had an executive who I've been coaching who was one of the top folks at Salesforce, and he took an SVP job at another company. And I, I coached him prior to and in the early stages of his transition. And he wasn't ready, wasn't open. Mm-hmm for the inclusive leadership coaching. And then I got a call from him about a month ago because he got three separate pieces of feedback by individuals in the company, women. And so the, the human condition, I see it over and over again. Pain is the ultimate motivator, ultimate motivator, you know, for people to change. You all know Rivian, the, the, the oh, sure. electric car company. And so uh, a woman, one of their executives left, I think before or shortly after they went public. And I reached out to them saying, or I had one of my people on my team say, hey, um, how would you like to talk given what's happening? Got the call back right away, right away. So there's a lot of companies looking to navigate these waters in yeah. the right way. So I, I applaud them. We're all going to make mistakes. And Good it's job. really more important how you respond to the misstep that will define you, not so much the mistake. I'm curious from your now research and, um, and intentional um, view into the corporate settings in different industries, are there certain industries where toxic toxic masculinity 
is still going to perform pretty well, that it's going to be out there because of the nature of the industry? Or are there certain regions in the country where you think it still is celebrated, possibly? Well, what's your take there? I, I wouldn't say it's celebrated. If you look at Silicon Valley and high tech, the bro culture, that's yeah. alive and well, but there's, there's light shining on it. Uh, you look at the financial services industry, historically been a good old boys club. Um, and I, that's where I herald from. I was in the financial services industry. Legal. I'm a JD, but I, and I come from a, a line of lawyers and judges, but they're turning the corner significantly. And then you look at the oil and gas industry, predominantly men in the field. Yeah. Even these companies, they're starting to reevaluate both coasts. There's a lot of receptivity, but I'm starting to get, uh, you know, inquiries from the middle of the country, you know, and so they're a little bit more um, cautious and conversations I was having with women's ERG groups seven, eight years ago. I'm having the same conversations with some of the companies in the middle of the country or that I was having six or seven or eight years ago. So it's always about meeting them where they're at. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but the good news is, is that people are waking up to it's time for these changes to happen. And the, the thing that I don't talk about very much um, is that it's one thing to get this pressure from women and marginalized folk, but you know who else doesn't want to tolerate this? It's the younger generations. Yeah. They're yeah. like, they don't want to, they don't want to be dictated to by people that look, you're in my, my age, Dave. Yeah. You know, because that's in their, their mid thirties, uh, because you know, yeah. we're, we're not Notice on just camera. You, so let's just assume, yeah, us in our mid thirties, it's, <laughs> uh, it's an issue. Now, let me take that even further, if I may, Ray, uh, yeah. as you're putting yeah. sort of the advantages uh, in place, you're shaping the advantages. Do you um, speak to the, um, the business strategy advantage of taking this on squarely for reasons that you uh, started to lay out, that your incoming workforce, the next generation of your workforce, is going to be less tolerant of toxic masculinity. How else do you shape a business strategic advantage to uh, companies who uh, are open? That's easy. Yeah. I don't even have to right now. I mean, I have two kids. My daughter just accepted a job at uh, a wholly owned subsidiary of Cisco, and I, you'd be blown away at what they offered her because the job market's so hot. So the number one game that companies are playing right now is how to win the war on talent. A bunch of people are never coming back to work. Companies have to keep going. So this younger generation and women and all the attention on marginalized folk, companies must if they want to win. Yeah, They have to have employees. And so if you have a reputation as a with a toxic culture and you're not inclusive and you look at the all the pictures up on the board and it's and it's the white man's overbite club you know you're they're going to walk in the other direction yep yep that's and true. this we're, is not about shaming that. or blaming the white men you know cuz i i say to guys you know how do you want to be experienced and and what's your reason for this maybe it's your daughter maybe it's your wife maybe you grew up with a father wasn't there and your mom worked two jobs really doesn't matter. Just pick a reason. Yes, it's good business. 
And this is a necessary change we're going through. And so, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah. So help our listeners who may be somewhere in the hierarchy of leadership, but not necessarily at the highest of levels, but they embrace this and they know that this is who they authentically are. How can you help them say, um, create a, um, a culture where silence isn't tolerated? In other words, what are some of the things they can do that is within their scope, within their purview? Yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the things for any of us who walk up the ladder of leadership is the fundamental recognition that becoming a leader is becomes less about what we do and more about who we be and how we be and with those around us. And that our success as a leader is going to be predicated on how we inspire, motivate, connect, support those around us. So concurrent with these middle managers that you're talking about, as they're learning more in their business, just like if you were going to work in a day job and going to law school at night, you've got a dual focus here. Put yourself on the path of becoming an ally and start to get proactively interested in how you're showing up at work, how you're making decisions, how you're communicating to those around you. Are you stepping and acting as an ally and as a leader? So it's it's at the risk of using an overused, often used statement, be the change you want to see. Take a moment in your meetings to set some ground rules about how people are going to contribute. Let the men know that, you know, this is how you're going to be rolling. Be sponsor a woman, mentor a woman, look around and say, okay, you've got power, position, and privilege to have everyone's perspective at the table. Are you using it? Are you doing what you can to create psychological safety? Are you turning and looking the other way? Yeah. I mean, I mean, we could spend another hour. I could tell you even more, but those are, those are some of the easy things you can do. But the net message is understand that this is a journey and that if you want to be promotable and let's just, let me talk to the white guys for a second. Yes. There's a tension on white men and it's not going away anytime soon. So the question I would have for you is, How do you want to be experienced by others? Can you understand that you have privileges that are unearned that make it easier for you to do some things? And are you willing, now that you're aware of that, to create a level playing field to support other people? They're going to win. You're going to win. Your company's going to win. Challenge the outdated norms. And and here's the last thing. Under the auspices of white male fragility, the worst thing that'll happen if you speak up call out one of your guys or make the decision that this is really important to you. They might kick you out of the boys club. They might say some stuff. They might rib you. And dare I say, get over it. Because for me as a white guy, you know, I, that's the worst thing that'll happen to me. If I was a man of color, a gay man or a woman, I can't even imagine the consequences. So Therein lies the fragility piece that we need to all breathe into and get past and be courageous. Be courageous. Yeah. Yeah. So 
uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, just a comment too, because I, I witnessed some of this stuff too, and I do find uh, it's often the subtle behavior changes that it can have a bigger impact than than some of the bigger ones, the more grandiose uh, of being in that in that ally moment, right, where that's a critical moment. I have to find the subtle um, subtleties of it. I can have a bigger impact on everybody because they learn from that and they realize, oh, I don't have to be so loud and bold about my opinion or decision on this, but it's the subtleties, the subtleties of behavior, right? That stop those sort of uh, unhealthy interactions. Here's one that people, that when we do a training, guys come back and I've heard this story spoken a couple of times. A guy will say, you know, I know we, we, we looked at biases and language last week with you guys, Ray, and I was in this meeting, 120 people were on a Zoom call. And the guy that started said, hey, guys, and he goes, wait a minute. I meant, hey, everybody, I'm working on my language. So in that moment, he was transparent. He made a mistake. He owned it. And you know what else he did? He taught. So that's just yep. one, a very, very simple thing. It, and, it, and we're just yeah. trying to get people started, yep. right? Yeah, but that's, that's how easy it can be. Yep. Yeah, and that's someone who was confident enough in his own skin to be able to um, uh, speak in that sort of vulnerable way. But what a wonderful modeling that just happened there in that, in that moment. Um, before we have to uh, say goodbye, I'm curious to get a sense from you. Uh, Chris and I deal with a lot of fast-growing companies. In fact, Chris is an executive for a fast-growing company as we speak right now, and, and I'm working with a number of them. There's a, uh, a lot of churn in the marketplace, a lot of push for top talent, a lot of scaling companies. What are you seeing as some of the best practices in the recruiting realm where um, – there's a chance to build a culture of allies. How do you, um, if you're down to the only viable candidate is the white guy, how do you ensure, what do you look for? What do you ask that gives you insight as to this person's likely um, healthy character that you're bringing into the workplace? So if I understand your question, the the company is a fast-growing company. The setting is um, a, a recruiter or the company talking to a candidate, and we're down to the last candidate, and he happens to be a white male. Yeah, is that but you just don't want it to hit default and hire him because he has a good resume, but he may be a bit of a toxic fit. How do you make the distinction between toxicity and someone who brings value? How do you look for that? There's there's a there's a meta answer and a and a and a and a in the trenches answer. I'll do the in the trenches first. I would ask him. So, um, tell me about your 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 views around diversity and inclusion. What is your understanding? Um, and what's your opinion about all this attention uh, on men, specifically white men? What are your what are your feelings about that? How do you feel about that? You know, what's important to you? To start to have a dialogue to, 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 to vet him, right? And then I would say, okay, imagine you're inside the company and all eyes are on you. Talk to me about um, how you might lead inclusively. And if he trips all over himself and doesn't know how to answer, or he gets defensive and he listens from the head, you have your answer that you better not hire this guy. Yeah. Now, 
Mike Kaufman, CEO of Cardinal Health, the Fortune 20 company, when he, before he became CEO of the company, he was just at my Better Man conference. He said, we are going to hire more women. And I do not want to see any candidates. I want to see all the list of candidates in front of me before anybody makes any hiring decisions. And he took it one step further. And he, he because a lot of guys would say, um, there's no pipeline, there's no candidates here. Until we got these guys to start thinking outside the box, talking to each other, and this thing that guys tend to do where they will promote a guy based on, on possibility, because there's research out there that says if there's a job opening and a man has zero to one of the, of the qualifications, he'll do, put me in coach, I can do it. He'll raise his hand. Hmm. Women, from, because of a confidence issue, will have four of the five and they won't apply because they don't have the fifth. So to that recruiter, I would say, be aware of that and get creative. Otherwise, you're going to fall into the same old trap over and over and over and over again. Yeah, we don't like traps here in the leadership. Trap. No, there it is. I, I gave you your trap. Okay, good. <laughs> well, uh, that will be our um, a bit of a takeaway, although I want to give you also the last word on where you want um the emphasis to be for our listeners. What, what's um, what's the first most critical step uh, leaders or companies should take if if they've come to the table now on this topic? Uh, adopt a beginner's mind and make the commitment to put yourself on the journey to becoming an ally. To be proactive, and so lots of ways you can do that. Um, shallow into the pool is. Uh, get my book um, because you can do that in the privacy of your own home, your own, your own home. Um, attend the better man conference. Um, bigger, bigger, bigger picture stuff is reach out to me and we'll have a conversation about uh, if this is really important to you or if there's pain points or opportunities that you're imagining, what could that look like? Because a lot of my conversations with diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, leaders they are sitting in this question right now as we speak. How do we engage men? And for many companies, they excluded men when they put these strategies together. And they're now realizing, oh my God, 80% of leadership positions are held by men. Huge oversight. So, which squarely puts them in the question of how do we engage the men? Right. And so, if you're a leader, uh, raise this up your flagpole and uh, and get curious and, and and see what there is to do. As an individual, put yourself on the path. We've been talking to Ray Arata, the author of the new book, Showing Up, How Men Can Become Effective Allies in the Workplace, um, conveniently available at your local independent bookstore. And of course, as a default, it's out there on uh, Amazon. Uh, where else can people find you and learn more about uh, you and this movement? Two places. Um, if they, if you all go to showingupbook.com, uh, there's plenty of information there. Uh, there's a drop down for bulk orders so that companies can package the books and a short keynote talk. They can talk to me about that. There's a lot of testimonials and reviews and things that nature to, to get more educated but also to go to bettermanconference.com and sign up for our newsletter. 
I, we post blogs. We send out information uh, for our conferences. We're going to be doing two this year. Uh, and we also do these conferences inside companies. And so the last thing we're going to be doing is rolling out a Voices of Masculinity monthly community call. It's free starting in March where Jennifer Brown and I are going to be doing a, uh, an interview book launch thing in February. But this is a way to stay informed. And it's not a heavy lift, but it's just a way if, this, if what you're hearing today intrigues you, makes you curious, and you want to get a little bit more, that's the best way to do it. Yeah, thanks so much for your time, Ray. Uh, I applaud you in your work. It's um, certainly the right topic at the right time. There is a a business strategic advantage to this. So companies are coming to realize this is not just check a box. It's the right thing no. to do. Yeah. Uh, thanks. Good luck in uh, your work ahead, Ray. Such a pleasure having you on the leadership yeah. track. Thanks for coming on, Ray. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Do you know a leader who could benefit from hearing about the leadership trap? Well, we hope you will share this podcast with them. And remember, give the podcast a five-star rating. Every rating helps us reach more leaders. You can find us at theleadershiptrap.org. Okay, we'll see you next time. And until then, stay out of those traps.